Welcome everybody to our 81st episode of Bumper Sticker Faith. Wait, is it 81st? And it is 81st. And on every 81st episode, <laughs> we don't have Lewis Dooley with us. <laughs> so this is what happens on number 81. Uh, today we have a, a special guest co-host because uh, Lewis has taken some much needed uh, time off. We have someone uh, that's familiar to the show. His name is Mike Stanzek. And you were on, I don't know which episode you were on. Oh, I, should, I, I meant to look that up, but yeah, maybe it was in the 50s. But Mike has been on uh, the show before. Uh, he's a, a pastor and, well, we'll let everyone introduce themselves. I guess I was thinking along the lines of a typical uh, theology podcast episode <laughs> where, we go around, where we go around the horn and uh, why don't we introduce ourselves, say something brief about us. So Mike, you're up first. Um, yeah, I pastor Trinity Community Church in Libertyville, Illinois. Um, I've been pastoring there for five years. I grew up in the church, so my parents are still in the pews. And wow. uh, in, in this case, a, a prophet is not unwelcome in his hometown. Um, <laughs> so that's been good. Um, married to Ashley, and we're expecting our fifth any day. Yeah, any second now. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Uh, and my name is uh, Sam. Uh, it's actually my mom's birthday today. That just occurred to me. Oh. So happy 75th <laughs> to my mom. Uh, yeah. And, uh, does she listen to the show? <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Oh, sometimes funny. she does. So uh, that's enough about me, as they say. I've authored a few books, but um, it's definitely enough about me. Uh, so today our special guest is C.R. Wiley, Chris Wiley. So Chris, welcome to the show, to Bumper Sticker Faith. Why don't you yeah, say a couple Sam. things about yourself? Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm C.R. Wiley and I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest and I've written some books and I've been a professor of philosophy and and been a real estate investor. So uh, that's me. Great. And I read most recently the In the House of Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love, great. Love that book. Yeah, that was great. Love. Glad that. to hear it. The uh, yeah, the the idea of just of joy and that being a way to um, I don't know. It felt to me like that's a way to proclaim our faith and defeat the enemy and so forth. But that, I'm, yeah, I love that book. But today we're talking about another book, um, maybe directly and directly. Uh, but your book on the household and the war uh, for the cosmos. And to get going on that, I want you to share, if you would, a little bit more about yourself, in particular about how you grew up, your childhood, and um, uh, I guess start from there, because that plays an integral part about uh, where the where the book picks up. Yeah, okay, yeah. I did in that book uh, start off, I guess, in the introduction with a little synopsis. Um I uh, didn't grow up in an observant Christian home. Um, I was born into kind of a nominally Episcopalian home. My uh, my father was a, an academic. He was at University of Buffalo and then later at Washington U in St. Louis. And my mother was uh, a housewife, but also kind of an artsy person and uh, had a real interest. We I, I grew up surrounded by replicate, you know, sort of uh, reproductions of great works of art. We, we had, uh, I remember Michelangelo's Moses. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it always mm-hmm. freaked me out because Michelangelo <laughs> uh, put goat horns yeah. on him. <laughs> <laughs> I was always puzzled by that. But anyway, uh, 
But it was the 60s, uh, early 70s. Everybody was seeking. Nobody was finding. Everybody was looking for themselves in California. That's where they, I guess they thought they lost themselves. And uh, everybody just <laughs> that thought that, you know, the only way you could find yourself was by abandoning your responsibilities. Mm. It, it all had to be kind of like a Rousseauian, genuine, sort of authentic, welling up from within kind of mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. rather than looking to your the fact that you're a father or a mother to define you. Mm. <laughs> you know, so anyway, uh, that led to a number of crazy things. Uh, eventually, my father ended up in the Church of Scientology. Mm. So I, I was in that world for about five or six years. And then everything kind of blew up found myself, uh, my mother was in and out of mental institutions after that. My father was living in California. Um, yeah, but I was in Western Pennsylvania. I was a ward of the state, spent time in mm. foster mm. care and so forth. But it was just weird. And um, it was in that environment that I uh, encountered some salt of the earth uh, Christians, mm. blue collar people. That's what you find in Western Pennsylvania. It's mm-hmm. blue collar. And those are like your early teen years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was converted when I was a, a, an older teen. And then, um, you know, I, I had an aspiration to be a comic book artist. That was mm-hmm. my big mm-hmm. dream as a kid. Which I but, should mention um, too, you're super talented. So you did the art for In the House of Tom Bombadil. Is that right? Yeah. I did the cover for that. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, it was one of those things where I was just kind of scribbling and I, I did something. I, oh, I kind of like that. <laughs> and, <laughs> And then they uh, they were talking about what to do with the cover. And I said, well, I got something I did. Maybe if you guys want it, that'd be great. If not, no biggie. And then they decided to use it. I'd like to be able to scribble like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm working on a children's picture book right now. Cool. Um, so that's where I'm. most of my energy when it comes to drawing is invested at the moment. But anyway, uh, it was because of that kind of crazy uh, childhood that I, when I became uh, a husband and, and later a father, I I had a real interest in understanding what our ancestors thought of when they thought about these roles and what it meant mm-hmm. to establish a household. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, spent time at Harvard Divinity School. I was in teaching philosophy. So I was acquainted with Aristotle and Xenophon and so forth. So I just did a deep dive on the subject with uh, those authors and discovered that everybody from Seneca to Cicero to the Apostle Paul understood the household in a particular way. Mm. And at the more I, the more I uh, delved into it, the more I realized that it had been that way up until the Industrial Revolution, largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there were some weird periods, you know, during uh, feudalism and so forth, where things weren't as uh, strong in terms of household economics, but they, even during those periods, there was a kind of an assumption that things worked certain ways. Hmm. So as I thought about it, I realized that the household really isn't um, defunct or moribund or obsolete. It's just that nobody has invested any time defending it. Hmm. And some erstwhile uh, defenders of the family in the 20th century, particularly in the church, people like Gary Smalley or Jim Dobson, mm-hmm. they had already bought into kind of a, a kind of a watered down understanding of the household. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're great people. I'm, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but they they were dealing with the kind of early 20th century uh, kind of compromise mm-hmm. on what households uh, are and how they should function. But I thought, well, I'm just going to 
make the case that the household is as relevant as it's ever been and help guys in particular understand how they worked. Mm-hmm. Could, could you open up some of the differences a little bit more? So in the book, you you touch on a few ways in which the the kind of 20, 20th, 21st century conception of the household is different than what's been the norm and certainly what Paul was assuming when he wrote the household codes. But could you, yeah. could you open up a little bit of that? Yeah, well, we today think of the household purely as a recreational institution, someplace you go at the end of the day after you've done important things someplace else. So we have a term, the workplace, and that's never mm-hmm. in the house, although that's changing a bit right. uh, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But um, what happened was uh, the household was reinterpreted in the early 20th century to uh, as a kind of uh, companionate uh, a place, uh, sort of companionate uh, sort of framework uh, for people who kind of like being with each other to live together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's why things like, you know, gay marriage and stuff like that seem to seem to follow yes. um, because people don't think about households uh, the way they used to. Um, so it within that, too frame- that uh, gay marriage becomes totally coherent if um, sort of the givens of our sexes um, don't actually have a functional purpose. Um, you know, they're, yeah. they're obsolete in a recreational model. And so, um, you know, why can't it be between be between two men or two women? Um, yeah, it's all you know. reduced to taste. Yep. You're into this, I'm into that. You know, even the even marriage has now been reduced to taste. Well, if you're yep. into marriage, great, good for you. Uh, so I'm into- the image I'm getting, I don't know if this is cr- a correct image or not, but the image I, or the picture I'm getting is that of just to help people grasp what you're saying is that of like a a, a ship out on the ocean, a, a naval ship, and there are there. Are, uh, concrete jobs, duties, and responsibilities that the people on board need to have to get that thing uh, to to go and, and to be safe and to accomplish its mission. If if you yeah. change those missions to no, now your mission is just to bond and enjoy each other on the deck. Well, you, you're not going to go very far, right? You're going right. to compromise the mission and the purpose of the thing itself, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's right. So it's we've transitioned from being, say, a fishing boat where everybody's working to bring in the catch mm. to an ocean liner where you have, uh, you know, maybe the crew <laughs> who have jobs and then everybody else is just kind of enjoying themselves on lawn mm. chairs and eating too much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where you say the only job of the dad is to select what to watch on TV that night. <laughs> yeah, or or just pay for the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and it, it, yeah. It, it makes me think, too, of was it Justice Kennedy who described marriage as um, a relationship to your number one person? That's okay. That, that I'm modern, not familiar with that. Yeah. The modern conception is is just sort of formalizing the recognition of your number one person, hmm. yeah. right? Whereas yeah. whereas this is um, well, I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah. Rather than, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, in a you know prior to the the modern or the industrial age, um, you know, uh, give an example of the importance of children uh, in all of this. So. Prior to the advent of Social Security, which was, of course, a measure taken or sort of instituted, an institution that was created during, uh, you know, FDR's mm-hmm. uh, New Deal, 
before that, it was understood that your children were your retirement plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Literally, they, they were your retirement plan. Mm -hmm. uh, 401ks, uh, Social Security, these are th things that now people take for granted and really don't understand in terms of uh, how they actually function. They, a lot of people out there actually think that 401ks and uh, Social Security don't actually need uh, new people paying into them to work. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, you, you've got to continually increase the number of people who pay into these uh, fiduciary institutions, which basically just redistribute wealth uh, in order for them to function. So they're not like bank accounts. Mm -hmm. um, if if there are fewer people buying houses or buying stocks or, or buying goods, the value of your 401k goes down. Uh, same thing when it comes to Social Security. If people aren't paying in, more and more people aren't paying in and taking care of the people who are relying on it, then they go uh, belly up. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're actually looking at. I think the latest number I saw was 2035 is when Social Security will no longer be solvent. Hmm. Now, it's not going to go away overnight. It's not, it's not as though it's just going to collapse. So they'll either run on a deficit, which is something we've done for, with everything else, <laughs> or just print money, which, of course, means that what they pay out will you know, grow less and less valuable over time, or uh, they'll just uh, cut benefits uh, or mm -hmm. raise the age at which you can get those benefits. That's, that's how they'll manage it. Mm -hmm. But what will, in effect, happen is you won't be able to rely on it like you used to. It won't be as important to people as it once was. And it's simply because we have fewer people paying in. Mm -hmm. Uh, relative now, the total population may grow up in the country, but um, in a, in a very in a, in the very near future, twenty percent of the United States will be over sixty five. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're all people. You know, think about that. You mm -hmm. know, then you know you got people who are too young to pay into it. Then you got a number of people who just don't pay into it at all. Mm -hmm. And then you got so we have fewer and fewer people taking care of more and more people. It just doesn't it doesn't work. But in antiquity. Uh, you know, like today, today, if you if you have twelve kids, what's the first thing people say to you? How do you afford that? <laughs> right? Or that's the first thing. Even with just our four, or expecting our fifth, we'll have people say, "Better you than me." <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just stupid, stupid stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, uh, what we saw in Scripture is Jacob was considered a wealthy man because mm -hmm. he had twelve sons. That's right. Um, they were productive. They were working in the family concern, and and they were people he could rely on in his old age. Now, obviously, there were a lot of personality issues, conflicts, craziness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's that's normal. You see that at every job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, not, it's not as though uh, you know these sorts of problems go away when we were when we just go to work uh, every day uh, for to work for the corporation or whatever. But anyway, that's how that's how households were uh, remained solvent as they were functional they uh, and tasks in the households were uh, performed in order to to strengthen the common wealth of a household so mm -hmm. the work of a mother the work of a father the work of the kids uh, all together and then the extended family uh, it all contributed to the to the welfare of the of everybody who belonged to the household and mm -hmm. you know I, I could anticipate someone responding along the lines of yeah but you know, are you saying we do away with attachment and companionship? And, you know, what's, you know, where, where are we going to, where, where do you find that in, in this model? Well, of course you're, you, you spend time with the people you work with. So there is still that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it's yeah. always, 
it's always great to love them (laughs) 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 and enjoy being with them. So what happened with companionate marriage, this is what uh, psychologists in the early 20th century were wrestling with because they understood the household in a much more functional way because many early psychologists actually had grown up in those sorts of homes. But they they optimistically uh, proposed that you didn't need to have the the work. You could retain the relationships, and they could just just be emotional in character. Mm-hmm. But what we've discovered is that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care how many date nights you have. Uh, I don't care, uh, you know, how nice you are to each other. We need to sort of have something that pulls us together that's productive in character mm-hmm. in order to keep us uh, tied to each other. So it, it's, you know, when a, when a husband and a wife can, can say and mean it, I don't think I could live without you, and that's not Hallmark greeting card mm-hmm. talk. Mm-hmm. It means, you know, I really depend on you for mm-hmm. a number of things. There are things that you can do as a man, there are, you know, that I need you to do. A husband can say there are things that, that you do as a woman that I need you to do and I can't do. We really depend on each other. Mm. That's a beautiful thing, yeah. not a, a horrible thing. Yeah. In the uh, introduction by Nancy Piercy, uh, <clears throat> it was it was great to hear from her and kind of the, see the lights going on in her head too, from her listening to your original talk about this and then reading the book uh, about the role of women in an- antiquity and how. Um, I guess I want you to flesh that out a little more too. But we have this idea that when another objection we can anticipate is people will say, oh, you just want you know the woman to be at home. And, and then, uh, and yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not really how it was. Uh, so I guess flesh- It's an aversion to the, hierarchy of any kind. Yeah, flesh that understanding out. Yeah, well, the funny thing about these people who object, and this is something that G.K. Chesterton noted, um, many feminists are more than happy to submit to- uh, you know, the leadership of a man in a hierarchy in a corporation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're even willing to wear hats mm-hmm. <laughs> if they're told you need to wear a hat for this job. You know, you know what I'm getting at with mm-hmm. head coverings mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but when you step out of that framework and you put it in, you know, you, you say, we're going to do this and we're even going to love each other, suddenly it becomes like a crazy talk. Mm-hmm. But when we when we think about antiquity, even up into the you know industrial era, there really weren't all that many things outside the home that you were involved in. Yes. Now, if you were uh, in, in the military, sure, you know there was something you did that was uh, that bound you together with other men. If you were in a say a guild of some kind, you were still largely working at home, mm-hmm. even though you belonged to this organization that looked after the interests of people in your trade. And you, meaning the husband, the, the dad. Right. Yep. Right, uh, or maybe you were a priest. So all of these, all of these roles uh, were male. Uh, they, they were roles that men uh, performed, but the daily labor that was required to make a household work was a full-time job. Uh, the care of children, uh, their education, the mm-hmm. care of the elderly. Think about it this way: there were no old folks' homes. That's right. Um, there were no public. Uh, schools. Mm-hmm. That's right. These are inventions of the modern era, and it's because we have such a super productive economy that we have enough sort of, I guess, surplus 
uh, wealth to fund these institutions. Prior to that, it just wasn't the case. Uh, women weren't getting up every day and wondering, what can I do that's important? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they had all kinds of stuff that they looked at and saw that. Now, they also had, uh, you know, relationships outside of the house. Uh, many women, of course, worked together on common projects. If you did some, if anybody cares to look into it, if you looked into the, say, the nature of, uh, uh, you know, organizations that were, you know, intended to help households work together and then in, say, ancient Greece, you know, women often were involved in the festivals, uh, helping to uh, make those festivals happen. Um, but their but their primary uh, sphere of activity uh, was in the household, but it was also understood to be, the household was understood to be a, a, a productive uh, enterprise. It mm-hmm. wasn't like uh, just sitting around watching soap operas all day mm-hmm. eating bonbons or something like that, you know? And you give the example of, I forget which... And uh, antiquity writer of Xenophon. Xenophon, yeah, uh, of him raising up, uh, not raising up, but with the woman of that household, her um, the equivalent of what she was doing would be like a, a CEO of a company. Yeah, in fact, he, there are some remarkable passages in that dialogue. It's a Platonic or it's a Socratic, I should say, dialogue. Uh, Xenophon was a a a, 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 a colleague of, uh, or a peer, um, he was contemporaneous with Plato. They mm-hmm. both studied under Socrates. And so Xenophon's dialogues are like Plato's dialogues where Socrates is the protagonist. Mm. But in that, uh, dialogue, the, I think it's Isomachus is the, is the householder that is being mm-hmm. interviewed by Socrates. A number of statements just don't fit the feminist narrative. Mm. Um, there's there's a point in the dialogue where he's describing the work of his wife and he's praising his wife. Um, and he notes, he has a conversation with her in which he tells her that she, there, there may come a point in time when their children honor her more than him mm. because wow. of her contributions to their household. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that doesn't that's not something that, yeah, that's not something that feminists ever care to to talk about mm-hmm. why why do you think it is that in our time we tend to see men as expendable well i mean there are there's been a lot of work on that i you know one of the things that people have noted is that eggs are expensive and sperm is cheap <laughs> so i don't know if you ever thought about that but that, that might be uh, the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's that's one way to analyze it. Uh, are you thinking just in terms of households, or just in terms? Yeah, of our I, society? I think so. I mean, um, you know, and, and maybe this is where we can transition also to the church mm-hmm. as a whole. But um, I think as I kind of look at the lay of the land, what I what I notice is that there's the feminist concern that patriarchy. Uh, views women more or less as expendable. It underappreciates oh. their unique contribution. And yet, right. for all intents and purposes, we're actually living in a time where men are not thriving, where men are, are um, you know, uh, performing at a, uh, um, at a deficiency in comparison to, to 
past decades. Um, men are confused and aimless. And there's, um, you know, I think of this article that uh, Anthony Bradley came out with a little while ago about evangelicalism being a matrilineal society. So you can have these ostensibly complementarian churches that have male leadership. And yet um, the the duties and responsibility of passing on the faith largely are taken up by the women and church life revolves around them. And there's kind of this question of, you know, what are men really for? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah. 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 It's interesting that Anthony should bring up matrilineal uh, dynamics considering, you know, he's a black American and uh, the black church has been notorious in this respect for, for a long time. Um, I was involved in urban ministry. I've got lots of friends who are still involved in urban ministry. Got lots of African American or black friends who are leaders. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that I saw uh, is uh, black pastors who have a, a patriarchal approach have much healthier church dynamics mm-hmm. than those who don't. Um, but getting to getting to the to the to the main issue here, I think. Um, there is uh, some un, sort of underappreciated uh, dynamics that go on in our economy. Um, one of the things that people uh, have failed to fully appreciate is just how big business has supported gender equity feminism from the start. Mm. And it's because uh, it's, a, it's a labor issue. So a lot of gals are really great workers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're smart, uh, they're well-organized, they're compliant, uh, they, they get things done. Um, and once upon a time, they did those things in their households. Mm-hmm. Maybe their husband was a blacksmith or he was a farmer or whatever, what have you, but they worked together. And the conversation at the breakfast table was, you know, who's going to go onto the back 40 today or who's mm-hmm. going to get the pig iron, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. And getting the kids involved in things. Now, um, all of that, you know, uh, great potential is is coveted by corporations. Mm-hmm. And so households are competing with corporate America for the labor supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, corporate America is completely committed to gender uh, sort of equity feminism mm-hmm. uh, because they see... Uh, the household as compet- a, comp- a competitor. Hmm. So um, it's not because, you know, the, the folks over there at XYZ Corp just love women, you know, and want to liberate them. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> what they're interested in is 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 getting them into the, their co- company so they can use them and, and that kind of thing. Hmm. Now they get paid, of course, and, and probably are treated fairly well. But uh, there's a trade-off. There's mm-hmm. a series of trade-offs. You know, these women have fewer children. Uh, these women are not as sort of wrapped up in the daily sort of uh, sort of concern uh, with regard to the care of children or the mm-hmm. elderly or working with their husbands on productive, you know, things. Uh, so it's not as though these gals have it all. You know, there used to be a, a bunch of nonsense commercials about women and can have it all. And mm-hmm. it, it was one of these things where, you know, have you ever heard, uh, you know, people talk about multitasking, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really ever something that happens. You know, you're only do, able to do one thing at a time. It's just that 
you do a lot of things poorly. <laughs> you're, you're just kind of like, you know, distracted, you know, doing this a little for a little bit and then uh-huh. switching over here. And you're, it's like spinning those plates. So uh, women, uh, you know, and men, you know, this is just, it's just a fact of life, you know. Um, we, well, how we order our lives, we can either order them in such a way that we figure out ways to be productive and engage in the market and at the same time uh, strengthen our households, or we, uh, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me too, just to add one more thing about kind of, um, you tell me if we're, no, you know, no. the checkpoints. Yeah, so you got no, to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think Stephen B. Clark, you know, demonstrated this really ably in his man and woman in Christ uh, chapter on the industrial revolution and the technological society that, you know, prior to the industrial revolution, the, the roles in the household were just kind of obvious, you know, who, who's going to push the plow the guy with the big shoulders, mm-hmm. you know, right. he, he's going right. to push the plow and who, who's, who's going to be the defender of the household. Um, well, the, the one that doesn't have an innate vulnerability um, that comes from the ability to bear life, you know, it's going to be the one that again right. has the big shoulders and um, can hit harder, you know? And so there's, there's just kind of this functionality built into the meaning of our bodies. It goes back to something you mentioned very early on that the idea of, meaning coming not from within, but really from without, from the givens of our lives, as mm-hmm. Roger Scruton might call it. But post-industrial revolution, um, you know, the uh, that unique contribution of our bodies isn't so obvious, you know, and so it gives us yeah. an impression of um, everything being fungible. Yeah, that, and it's a crazy thing. Um, again, it, isn't, it wasn't all that long ago where things were different. They're still that way. It's just that we've got uh, ways to sort of kind of kid ourselves. Hmm. So my sixth great-grandmother was Jenny Wiley, the famous pioneer woman Hmm. uh, who was abducted in an Indian raid in Kentucky. And there's a park named for her, uh, the Jenny Wiley State Park Hmm. in Kentucky. But she lost six children, I believe, in that raid. Her husband was at market selling ginseng. Uh, and it was during his time away that the that the Indians attacked, and so they abducted her. She was pregnant at the time. Uh, she gave birth, uh, you know, as they were traveling, and then they killed the the, the infant. Jeez. She ended up escaping, um, and that's the f- kind of the famous part of her story, of course. And they actually know the path that she took mm. to get away. And then she was reunited to her husband. And I think she had like five or six more kids. Wow. wow. <laughs> so I'm descended from the second batch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, I mean, 
when you think about life in that kind of world, right. and that's the world that our ancestors lived in. So, like, if you think, you go back, going back to Xenophon, Economicon uh, is the book, or Economicon. And in that book, he talks about uh, his uh, regular routine of martial sort of, uh, sort of practicing the martial arts. So uh, a father in antiquity wasn't somebody who sat back at home and and said, go work, fight for me, minions. <laughs> he actually led the household into battle. Think about Abraham in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. right? He leads the men of his household to, to rescue his family. Uh, that's the way it was. Um, so, so people respected the head of house because he put his life on the line for the house, mm-hmm. for the household on a, on a regular basis. You see, another angle that... Um, has occurred to me too, is that you could also look at this as not uh, even necessarily comparing men and women for this argument. How about let's just comparing men to men and how we've lost our functionality, not in regards to we've discovered that women can do things now, you know, (laughs) of course they can. And of course they can do things really well and they're very capable and your sixth great grandmother escaping that. I mean, that just demonstrates the power of a woman. But even if you just isolate a man and compare the version of me to the version of my male ancestors, I'm afraid I probably don't even hold a candle to that fellow (laughs) as far as his capabilities and abilities to uh, survive and protect and to thrive, to run a household in that. And, And I think that's what, because the arguments, you know, not lately, but before lately, have always concentrated on men versus women, that dynamic. But then suddenly you have someone like Jordan Peterson, for instance, come to the stage mm-hmm. and start really say, saying, basically, no, men compared to men. And, mm-hmm. and men, you become the, the best version of yourself. You become stronger in that. And that, to me, was like, that was a different thing. And I think that's, yeah. you know, it's resonating, too, with, with guys about, about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that men generally uh, uh, want to be honored by other men, respected mm-hmm. by other men. Um, I think that male groups uh, work that way. And so, uh, uh, you know, we all want to be, uh, you know, loved and admired by our wives and our daughters and stuff like that. But what really kind of occupies our, our, mm-hmm. our minds is whether or not another guy uh, has regard for us. No, no and question. What do we yep. need to do to, yep. to, 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 to measure up? Yep. That's right. So then let's get into, uh, the, I guess the church and then the, the cosmos, how does all this fit into the war for the, the household and the war for, for the cosmos? What is the cosmos and yeah. how does this fit in? Well, we can think of the, of the cosmos as, as the largest household of all. Mm. Uh, and that. its head is the is God the Father, mm-hmm. who governs it um, and orders it. Uh, the term, the word cosmos in Greek means order at the largest level. Uh, it's not outer space. That's a contemporary mm-hmm. sort of reappropriation of the mm-hmm. term or other thing, or something different. That's really that's a really important point because our, our us modern people think of the cosmos as just some cold, dark, lifeless, no right. God, just science. But that's not what it right. is. Yeah, that's 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 right. It's not. So uh, the word we translate into the 
uh, English word world in the New Testament very often, not always, but very often, is the word the Greek word cosmos. Uh, and when we think about even the world, we think of it just as kind of a, a location, a place. Uh, we don't think of it as an order. But in antiquity, hmm. that the order was the thing. And we lived in a two-story house. Uh, there's the lower level where we are. Uh, you could even say it's three, three mm-hmm. stories. There's a basement, too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's the upstairs, and it's very much, uh, you know, uh, the, the upstairs is where those in charge live, hmm. you know, the heavenly court. Um, and then here, uh, we are uh, God's image in this vis- physical, visible sphere uh, or level of the cosmos, and we represent him here. Hmm. Uh, we can either do that well or poorly. Uh, and um, and so we're kind of middlemen of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. In uh, Middle Earth. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is exactly it. It, it is Middle Earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. That's what Middle Earth is re- actually referring to. If you mm-hmm. look at uh, Norse, um, you know, Norse cosmology. Mm. So um, we're here, and we represent the the you know the the one who is the true the true head of the of the house, the the Lord God, who is Father of all, and. Uh, our role as fathers here uh, is supposed to uh, reflect that, his rule. Mm. So we are to rule our houses as he rules his house. Mm. Pretty straightforward. Kind of, you know, one of the marvelous <clears throat> things about fractals is that this is what they, what it, that they get at. And, you know, if you're familiar with the mathematical uh, sort of language of fractals, but a tree is fractal in character. So you've got the large tree but every branch is an image of the of the larger tree mm-hmm. every twig is an image of the branch every leaf is an image of the twig mm-hmm. so you've got this kind of uh, uh, fractal character mm-hmm. to reality everywhere so that when i, I look it. at a maple leaf and i see the veins on it i see a pattern of the branch of the tree of the whole thing right and so yeah. then when you look at the household I see an image of the cosmos, of, of how the world is meant to work well. Right. That's exactly the way uh, we're supposed to think of it. Yeah, which which turns on its head some of the ways that many people think where, um, you know, it's it's kind of assumed that we, we say of God that he is a father because we have this reference point available to us of a father. And, yeah. and so we apply it to God. Instead, what you're really saying is that it's the reverse, that we have fathers because God is a father, he eternally right. generates we, the son and, and then creates. Right. That's precisely <clears throat> the argument that Paul gives in Ephesians 3, 15, mm-hmm. uh, 3, uh, 14 and 15. It says, I bow my knees before the father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Mm-hmm. And we don't get uh, what he's saying in English because it doesn't translate. It's, you know, something was lost in translation. It was really, really important. <laughs> Pater is the word for father. Katria is the word for family. Uh, so the word, when he says family, so in other words, you can't say family in Greek without saying father. Mm-hmm. That's his point. Mm-hmm. Every family in heaven and on earth is named for the father. And then when we see later in, you know, Ephesians 5, uh, the the heavenly household is the model model for the earthly household and the household code. So uh, husbands, treat your wives this way because this is how Christ treats the church. Wives, 
relate to your husbands in this way because this is the way the church relates to Christ. Mm-hmm. The, the, the eschatological household is the model for uh, the, our households as Christians. Mm-hmm. So you, now the reason why people think this way, and this is something that Feuerbach and Freud and other German types mm-hmm. <laughs> talked about. Well, it's because they're materialists uh, and they're essentially atheists. Um, you know, atheists and materialists, obviously, they don't recognize that the order of the world uh, is, uh, you know, the the handiwork of, of a creator. Mm-hmm. And it, it reflects his wisdom. You know, so if you do understand that the world, the physical world, is um, ordered according to God's wisdom, then you can learn things about the creator through mm-hmm. the visible world, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. the whole argument mm-hmm. for natural theology. Um, we don't learn everything. We can't learn that God will forgive us for our sins just by looking at that order. That's why mm-hmm. we need the revelation of Christ mm-hmm. and the resurrection of the dead to know that there's a future. Those things, the you know, revealed truth is is still uh, very central. But uh, there are lots of things we can know just by kind of looking around if we understand that this is a creation. Mm-hmm. Um so they were trying to explain why people attribute fatherly characteristics to God when they didn't actually believe that there was a God and that it was mm-hmm. just a matter in motion. But Paul says it works the other way around. The reason why we have fathers on earth is because we have a father in heaven. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can ask this. Yeah. Um, what is piety and how is it connected to the war for the cosmos? Yeah, piety is a word that we don't use much in the church today, and it's kind of had a downgrading. Uh, it's been downgraded uh, for a long time, even in the 19th century when people would speak of it. They weren't talking about it the way that, say, people in the you know, the first century did, particularly Christians and Romans. Um, piety, puce, uh, the Latin word, uh, refers to the regard that we should have for our benefactors. Um, it's a duty. So it has a social character. It's not strictly, it's not simply an inner disposition. Mm. That's the way we think about it today. Um, your grandma, we know when she's reading her Bible, we say, oh, she's a pious woman. Well, yes, she is. But when Aeneas uh, bites his way out of Troy, carrying his father on his back and leading mm-hmm. his son by the hand, mm-hmm. He was a picture of piety mm-hmm. in the Roman mind. He wasn't just uh, uh, a heroic man, although that's certainly what he was. Um, but he was a picture of piety because he he acknowledges his debt to his father, mm-hmm. and he's making a return. And he's also taking up his responsibility as a father and caring for his son. And both of those uh, were considered uh, pious. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, they reflected his his, his um, understanding of his duty. Mm-hmm. So uh, piety then is performing your duty uh, to God, to your ancestors, to your country, um, to your progeny, you know, caring for them. That's, that's what a pious man does. 
So like back to the fishing boat illustration, the uh, pious fisherman is not someone yeah. on the boat who just loves being a fisherman <laughs> and he gets <laughs> right. warm feelings about the, the nostalgic romantic ideas about sailing or whatever. But the pious right. fisherman is the one who catches fish to feed his family, to feed the village and so yeah. forth to honor God. Mm-hmm. Right. That's exactly right. We've internalized it. We've made it a kind of private inward thing when in fact in antiquity it was a social thing. How does that, I guess, misunderstanding of piety then, how has that manifested itself in our evangelical churches, for instance, in the, in the ways that we think about a pious person uh, and yeah. what potential damage has it caused? Oh, it's caused great damage. Uh, what, what it's tended to do is favor, say, the Marys over the Marthas, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um so if you recall the episode mm. uh, where Jesus... Is, I had to flip that in my head because I thought usually <laughs> people say the opposite. Right. But okay, go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but what, what you have is, is, is we lose sight of the significance of Martha. It's not as though Martha is, a, is a, an impious person. Mm-hmm. She's actually practicing her piety in a particular way. Jesus was actually... Um, I think he enjoyed her food. <laughs> After all, he was at the house for dinner, <laughs> along with the, with all the, his entourage, and uh-huh. and um. But I think what we've done is we've privatized uh, piety. We've internalized it. Uh, we've made it sort of uh, almost antisocial in character. Uh, it's the whole package. It you know piety would be both Mary and Martha. A pious person would have, uh, you know, a dimension of life that reflects Martha and a dimension of life that reflects Mary. Mm. They're both great. Uh, I don't think we should. I think he was maybe making a correct. I th- I'm sure he was. He was trying to correct her by, in, by you know, noting that there's something that Martha was missing. Um, but I think that if Mary never helped at all, ever, I think eventually mm-hmm. she would have been taken to task. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> a guess. <laughs> so, but uh, both are, you know, they're two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we've done is we've lost sight. And, and, and pastors are having to work at this all the time, trying to remind people, at least good ones, good pastors, trying to remind people of the connection of their faith to the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something that necessarily was a difficult thing to do in antiquity. Everybody kind of got it. You know, you lived in a a cosmos that was uh, ordered by uh, divine wisdom. Uh, You performed your duties. Um, Yeah, you you should do it from your heart. You should perform your duties uh, in the right spirit uh, without grudging or complaining and all that kind of stuff, you know, stuff. Uh, But but it wasn't as though uh, you could just kind of focus on heart religion, you know, heart mm-hmm. heart matters and outward forms are meaningless and that kind of thing. We all know that that kind of lends itself to a Gnostic way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I mean, the Lord makes it very simple when he says, that if you love me, you will obey my commands. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's often something people are like, I don't understand how that works. Or, right. <laughs> Yeah, or they think, oh, that's works righteousness. I shouldn't, you know. <laughs> I shouldn't believe him when he stuff. says that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just crazy stuff when people make that kind of comment. Yeah. So I guess putting some of these ideas together, um, 
I think me, people as a as an ordinary a Christian evangelical believer, we grew up in a world where, like with the analogy from the leaf to the tree, we're the this leaf and we look at ourselves and there's these like veins or lines on us, right? And we think those are just arbitrary. And and they're just yeah, they're just arbitrary. There there's no um significance because like like Chesterton had said in orthodoxy that science now, you know, explains everything. And so, um, not, not everything is integrated or whole. And so then therefore it's up to us, up to me to kind of come up with what, what piety looks like, um, how to, so this is, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a sort of the irony of this. So we're all kind of, I think, uh, aghast at the whole transgender thing. Mm-hmm. But many evangelical Christians have the same assumptions hmm. about the nature of the physical world as these folks do. Mm-hmm. They they don't we don't you know many of the those people think it's all inward. It's all about being authentic with with God and you know certain feelings that you have toward God and that kind of thing, and that the outward forms and even the the physical world has no inherent meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to impose meaning on it. Well, that's what the transgender movement does. It's it doesn't look at the physical world as as bearing any kind of meaning that has to be honored and submitted to. Mm-hmm. It's just stuff, mm-hmm. and 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 we impose our will upon it, and we have the technology to do that. Uh, it, we're just kidding ourselves, of course, but I I think that if we saw things in this way, we would uh, I, I would hope be shocked and say, I'm just like those people. I, mm-hmm. I, I approach the world the same way they do. Uh, something's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I need to recover an older and richer Christian understanding of the physical world. I wonder if, if here we can kind of, you know, speak to, to you as the pastor. You know, you've been pastoring for um, for a number of years. And, um, and so where do these ideas... I'm trying to think of the best way to ask the question, but I guess I'm wondering where these ideas find purchase in your pastoral ministry. You know, where do you, where do you find yourself doing the most work in equipping men or where where are you seeing, I'm particularly interested in, in just what it means for a pastor to equip men out of these ideas. So make that into a useful question and then (laughs) answer whatever question, you know, kind of, kind of gets you there. Well, I think it works itself into everything and, not doesn't necessarily have to have some kind of culture war sort of vibe. So, for example, this last Sunday I preached on Psalm uh, 63. And uh, what you have in that psalm is it begins with David, you know, uh, describing himself as, 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 you know, traveling through a dry and weary mm-hmm. land. And then uh, he refers to water and food and shelter. Uh, in the course of the, you know, the, and then of course, these are all analogs to God. God is the one who uh, refreshes. God is the one who nourishes. God is the one who shelters throughout the course of the Psalm. Now, um, I used this as an opportunity to talk about how analogs work in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what I said is, you know, we, what we've just been talking about, I said we can either think about analogies the way secular, godless people do, 
who think that it's just in our, you know, stuff that we're doing in our heads and mm -hmm. we're arbitrarily assigning value to things because we like water or we like food or we like shelter. Or we can say, God made the world and made us to be creatures or created us to be, you know, as creatures who need water, food, and shelter. Mm. And uh, is uh, he also had communicating uh, with us in mind when he did that. <laughs> and he uses these uh, as means by which he can communicate to us our spiritual needs for mm. his, uh, you know, you know, the, the provision uh, of these different things for us. So I just kind of worked it in kind of seamlessly mm -hmm. uh, into the message. And when I talk about, you know, say, uh, you know, the nature of our work as mothers and fathers and stuff like that, again, I don't approach it like some big culture war, mm -hmm. uh, you know, confrontation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I just talk about it in terms of this is the world that God's made and here we are and isn't it marvelous that God has given us these callings and that our bodies uh, are also uh, designed in such a way so mm -hmm. as to help us uh, to to perform our callings, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, and and you know, people are like yeah, yeah, that's great, <laughs> 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 and. Uh, and how we need each other and, you know, all these different things. Now, what happens over time is your your congregation ends up, if, if people have serious issues with this kind of stuff, uh, there's kind of a sorting process that goes on over the over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, either they uh, accept the teaching or they don't. Um, very often, though, uh, you, you kind of, you know, I'm at a point in my ministry, I've been doing this since the late 80s, I'm at a point in my ministry where it, there's just nobody who has any doubt, you know, what I think. Sure. A lot of people know. <laughs> sure. All I need to do is Google C.R. Wild and you can see what I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now I'm getting people coming to the church who kind of already uh, know what they're getting. Sure. Yeah. So the church church has been growing uh, and it's been great to see. But but it, it just kind of is something that's just part of everything that we do. My... Um uh, son broke his arm uh, playing soccer. Actually, he's broken it three times. Um, but on one of the occasions, I remember sitting in the ER and um, there was kind of a young doctor in there at first. And we were just, we, we knew the bone needed reset <laughs> and kind of nervous about the, the young doctor's abilities and just to look on his face and his confidence level. Uh, but then to our delight, <laughs> an older doctor who had, had been uh, doing uh, this for decades. And he even told us how many bones he was sitting there telling the story about how many hundreds or even thousands of bones he re he's reset. <laughs> and as he's yeah. telling us this, trying to assure us, he just pops it right back into place. <laughs> you know, he knew exactly what he was doing, but he did so. Yeah. Um, the idea for me is he did so out of a place of compassion, not that culture war attitude that like you're talking about, like, yeah. you know, he knew the way the body's supposed to function. Uh -huh. The bones are supposed to go this way. And when it's out of line, then we put it back in line and it's actually uh, a grace to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Great image. And yeah, I think that confidence, um, uh, you know, produces uh, confidence. So if, if you've got 
uh, a real ability to do something and you're confident, then people have confidence in you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it kind of works that way. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What, um, you mentioned, uh, Ephesians. Are there any other books of the Bible that you think are, uh, especially or passages of scripture that are especially important, uh, for this, um, kind of conversation? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the household is, uh, once you get it, you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what happens uh, with this conversation is, I think a lot of folks kind of have a sort of innate knowledge with regard to the way things are supposed to work. But there's just been so little, I guess, reinforcing of that innate knowledge uh through our public institutions or mm-hmm. media, that people uh, come to a place where they just kind of question it all the time and wonder about it. But once you provide a, a, a kind of explanation or some insight into how things work, there's a, a kind of an aha moment and people just get it. I mean, you think about it this way. Our ancestors, they, they lived this way for thousands of years. It's only been like 150 years mm-hmm. that we've kind of gotten mm-hmm. out of the practice. Mm-hmm. So we have the we have the institutions kind of the the ruins all around us, and and as soon as the, people see how things used to work, they're like, oh, of course, mm-hmm. aha. That same thing's true with scripture, and I think this is also where covenant theology is really so helpful because mm-hmm. covenant theology doesn't make much sense if you try to reduce it to just a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. It just is a personal relationship with Jesus, then it's just me and Jesus and who cares about the rest of the universe. Right. So <laughs> right, for right. our listeners, what is uh, briefly covenant theology? Well, covenant theology is uh, a covenant is a, um, a way to describe it would be like a, a contract that is sealed in blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so in other words, the stakes are life and death. Mm-hmm. And we see covenants referred to all through Scripture. You know, we've got the covenant, you know, the Mosaic covenant, the, uh, you know, Abra- the covenant with Abraham, you know, then we have the new covenant. And within that framework, um, you have something that's heritable. So it's something that's passed down. Um, so when we see the covenant, uh, made with Abraham, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. I mean, what better way to say uh, those who follow from you uh, or are your issue, uh, your progeny, are marked already? Uh, you know, the very ins- the very organ uh, by which you transmit your seed to the woman is cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, blood has been spilled, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So, uh, and th- so the, the you know so this covenant is made with Abraham, but all of his heirs are in Abraham at the moment. That's the uh, that's the mm-hmm. image, and then they are to be faithful to the covenant to worship God, uh, the God of their father Abraham, supremely, mm-hmm. uh, be totally devoted to him, and to pass on the covenant to their children. Now, in the New Covenant, uh, so going back to, say, the covenant that was made with Abraham, uh, there's there's uh, an heir, the legitimate heir, who is Isaac, right? So he is the, the true heir. Uh, as Christians, we believe that the true heir, the one who has inherited all the promises, is Christ. Mm-hmm. In Christ, all the promises are yea and amen, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? That means that Christ is the sole heir 
of everything. And the only way any of the, any of us get anything is if we're in him. Mm-hmm. So, and that's another thing that's interesting about the New Testament, mm-hmm. that little uh, preposition, uh, N, epsilon, nu, mm-hmm. I-N in English, uh, the translation, is a pretty big deal. And we talk in evangelical circles, you know, all the time about, you know, inviting Jesus into our hearts. That's great. I mean, there's biblical, there's a biblical warrant for doing that. But far more often in the New Testament, we're told that we should be in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the ratio is like seventy-five to one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how the how that's uh, this, uh, addressed or, or the way that preposition is used, uh, which means that um, Christ is the sole heir of the cosmos. And we are joint heirs with Christ. When we are in Him, we receive what He's been, but what wow. He's legitimately inherited. Yeah, and just wow. to to bring that even closer to what we've been talking about, you know, it 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 sounds you know, it seems like the economy of salvation is that Christ stands in for Israel through His life and keeps covenant right. on behalf of God's own people. And therefore, all the promises that were made to Israel over her history um, are are now uh, fulfilled in Christ. He he is entitled to to all the promises, and 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 therefore, anybody who is um, united to Him by faith, you know, uh, the the branch to the vine, mm-hmm. you know, faith being the organ of, uh, by which grace comes to us. Um, Anybody who's united to him is now united to all the the promises that are being fulfilled, and uh, because he he's the one who's bringing about the new creation. Uh, you know, when you think about salvation history this way, what it means is that we have this unique connection to the household of the cosmos now. That we are we are inheritors of the order, um, hmm. and so it it connects you way more to. Uh, well, first, it tells you how to read your Bible. But then secondly, um, the the functions of a father or a mother or, or any of this, um, like we, we as Christian fathers, um, our wives as Christian wives and mothers, um, we have this unique connection to the household of the cosmos now. And uh, it kind of goes back to the title of your book, um, that, that our... Uh, the dispatching of our pious duties is now the way that we take ground in a war for the cosmos that has already been won. Um, but, uh, but that victory has not been fully actuated, but we participate in Christ's cosmic victory. Um, not always through these, these giant, big spiritual, you know, would be spiritual acts, but through the, the dispatching of our duties. Mm. Is that what, yeah, that's, that's what exactly you mean right. by gorilla piety? Yeah, guerrilla piety would be the piety that we that we are performing behind enemy lines you know, mm-hmm. in the sense that we we still have to deal with the principalities and powers uh, that we uh, struggle with, wage war with, uh, but we're uh, behind enemy lines. You know, we're guerrilla fighters, um, and um, that's a marvelous way to think about. It. Another way to think about it too is that we're children of the king. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago I had a friend who was a Pakistani. Uh, evangelist, and he was just the most 
uh, joyful and exuberant guy you'd ever want to meet. Uh, he just would say, I'm a child of the king, you know, and then he would, he'd behave it like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it filled his his heart with joy to, to, to see himself mm-hmm. as connected with God through Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it affected uh, his demeanor, his behavior, his he was very bold evangelist. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember... One time I, I I took him and his family to the airport. We lived in Kansas City, and he was flying to New York to to uh, uh, f- fill a call there to pastor a church. And uh, we were running late, and uh, as he was running through the airport, he kept shouting, I'm a child of the king, hold the plane. <laughs> and when he got to the plane, the door had already been shut. Uh, and he beat on the door, shouting, I'm a child of the king, wow. let me in. <laughs> and they opened it up and let him in. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> goes back to that confidence thing you were talking about earlier. You know? right, right. Well, and, and yeah. you know, I, I forget if you brought this out in household or uh, in man of the house, but, um, you know, the in a, in an ancient household, you'd often have, you'd have the pater familias, and there'd be a number of duties that would need to be done on the estate, and the son... And the servant may both be shoulder to shoulder performing the same duties. The the difference is that the servant isn't going to inherit the land. That's that's the only difference. Everybody in the ancient household worked. Now, you, when you know, when you think about the Halcyon days of the Roman Empire, we where we have these patrician patricians who are like, you know, overseeing the work of thousands of slaves. Sure. I mean, that's different. But if you go back to the Republic and you see someone like Cincinnatus, he had an acre. He had, I think he only had five acres. Hmm. So he was out on the plow mm-hmm. uh, with his sons uh, mm-hmm. farming his small plot before they uh, made him dictator of Rome mm-hmm. <laughs> to save the city. <laughs> and it puts a, a spin on, on as we do deeds in keeping with repentance. I'm just finishing a series on Acts. So I'm remembering Paul saying that he part of his instruction was to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Well, what 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 are we doing there? Well, we're because we have been adopted in Christ. The the deeds that we do, we don't do it as the servant who's shoulder to shoulder with the sons but will not inherit the estate. The deeds we do in keeping with repentance, um it, it's hard work, but but we have a an investment in the estate because it's ours. the The kingdom of heaven right. will will go to those who have placed their faith in Christ. We will reign with Him forever and ever, as Revelation twenty two says. And so it's, uh, um, you know, I I just I'm I'm deeply thankful for your work because it does open up the scriptures in such a powerful way and opens up the significance of our salvation. So it's mm. it's operating on yeah. two levels, both reattaching us to the givens of our lives, which are which come down to us by um, by the creator and, uh, attaching us to, um, the whole economy of salvation, which is communicated to us mostly in familial terms. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, I thank you for that. And, uh, you, what you noted is everybody in the household works. So we're surrounded by slaves, slaves mm-hmm. to sin, but mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. uh, have to be compelled to serve, uh, you know, the, 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 the interests of um, the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we think about, uh, uh, you know, our witness, what we're actually doing is not necessarily uh, taking people who aren't doing things, uh, you know, that are uh, 
useful, but mm. we're actually saying, okay, we're, we're inviting you into, you know, uh, you know, a relationship to God in which you're an heir. You, mm. You're moving from the status wow. of slave to son. And, um, it's, you know, all yours wow. now. Um, and you can think about your relationship to the, to, to, to the heavenly father differently now. And you can think about your relationship to the world a lot yeah. differently. Yeah. Like yeah. what I think it's in Psalm 63 that you just mentioned. That's where the psalmist says, Your love, O Lord, is better than life. Mm. Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. Yep. That's what it says. Well, as we uh, will wind down now, and uh, I don't know if it's wind down or wind up, I think it's wind down. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting wound up. I feel up, pretty though. amped right now. <laughs> yeah. so that was a good so let's go around and any uh, any final thoughts uh, that we have, Mike. I'll start with you. Anything you wanna that you didn't get out that you want to share that's on your heart that this all stirred up for you? No, I mean I guess I would just encourage any uh, any pastors who are listening to um, to pick up Chris's books, mm-hmm. um, and and that includes in the House of Tom Bombadil. Absolutely. Um, which on the one hand is uh, just want to commend you for a great work of literary commentary. My background's in English. Um, I, th- I, th- I think it's just, it demonstrates a really capable uh, reader. You know, it's the work of a really capable reader, but it's deeply connected to um, everything we're talking about. So the, the pastoral implications of Chris's books um, and they're, they're just, extremely important. And the number of men at my own church that have benefited from, um, you know, newly married guys that were, I'll, I'll recommend man of the house or, or one of the others, um, you know, they, they unanimously benefit. They're, they're challenged often. Um, especially man of the house is a number of really convicting passages, but, um, but they always benefit. They're always really grateful. And so, um, there are just, uh, paradigm shifting, um, images and explanations in, in Chris's books that will help your pastoral ministry. And, uh, and they are, um, they're written in a way that, um, that will grip any level of reader. So whatever amount of theological knowledge you're bringing to the book, you'll, you'll be edified mm-hmm. by it. And so I just cannot, uh, recommend his work enough. Mm. Oh, great. Thank you for that. Chris, how about you? Any, uh, last words that you have? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I'm working on some different things now, um, but they all tie together. I'm working on a book uh, about totalitarianism, resisting that. Uh, the title of the working title of it is How to Resist, How to how to Defeat the, the New Communism in Your Spare Time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm actually running for uh, city council here in Battleground, really? Washington. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, we'll see how that all plays out. I mean, it's a long shot, but. Uh, if it works out, you know, I'll actually be able to put into practice some of the things I'm describing in the book. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll remember that in prayer. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's been great to be with you guys. Uh, you know, it's fun to see uh, God using the stuff that uh, that he gave me to mm-hmm. share. And, you know, my own kids are all grown and have households of their own, and I get new grandchildren all the time. I've got <laughs> five now. Mm. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. To me, as I give my uh, last words, where I guess you and these thoughts fit in, is uh, I was a pastor before, but my life fell apart completely and due to failure. And so that, my own failure. And so then that brought me to the place where I'm like questioning everything about, like everything goes on the table. And 
in my pursuit through therapy, through friendships, through just life of trying to put it back together, but in the right way, you know, to mm. reset that bone the way it should go. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm just in this, and that's what the heart of bumper sticker faith is, you know, no BS in our faith, mm. but right, not just right. the cliches, but let's, let, let's get back to the real pattern. And, yeah. um, I want my life to be ordered the right way. And as, even as I say that, I want my life to be ordered the right way, which I hope people want their lives to be ordered the right way. You could substitute that fractal pattern of an individual's life for life, right? Mm. For, for everything else. And Mm. so if, if someone struggles with getting their life ordered the right way and it's hard, I think it was in, uh, I think it was Julius Caesar Cassius said to Brutus, that the eye can see all but itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. if if I'm having a hard time seeing what I'm supposed to be, well, that's fine. God made it easy. He gave us these bigger things to look at. Mm-hmm. We can look at the world, you know, through general revelation. We can look at the church. We could look at communities and and, and how those best function and work together. Then we can apply that uh, to our own lives at a, at a micro scale. So that's what you do and what your work does. And even listen to the theology podcast, you guys mm-hmm. are drawing in so much and like throwing out there all these different ways mm-hmm. of looking at life and helping us to become integrated. That's, that's the word that mm-hmm. means wholeness means a lot to me. And we actually just had, um, Jack Baumgartner on our show a couple of weeks ago. Oh, nice. Great. And th- that's where his, his passion for the integrity of things and, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, looking at creation and how it speaks about God too. That's kind of where he's at wrestling with these things too. And right. that's why I wanted to have him on, but I feel like you give more of that biblical structure to things that will be helpful for me and for other listeners than to go and, uh, to find that true uh, godly integrity and wholeness as well. So mm-hmm. I just want to thank you. I want to thank our listeners for uh, listening to episode 81 of <laughs> Pumper Sticker Faith. And uh, if you don't know it, we're on uh, Patreon too, where you can support us. You can be a part of the BS crew as we like to have it. We have a few BS <laughs> crew members who support us and we definitely need the support so we can keep going. Or maybe you think, no, let's shut the thing down. <laughs> well, you can vote that way as well, but you can go to bumperstickerfaith.com. You can email us at bumperstickerfaith at gmail.com. We're now newly on uh, Instagram and Facebook and all that. And YouTube, you can watch this video. So I uh, uh, appreciate your listening and for joining us today. Chris, thank you again. Mike, thanks for joining us. And everybody, don't go stepping in no. Yes. All right.